That's right. So this is, you know, maybe I'm crazy and I don't, you know, if if I am, you can stop me or somebody will give me a comment and tell me I'm being a a bad theologian here. But (laughs) I think it's really interesting, of course, because we know Jesus as what? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Jesus is King of these five Kings. But what's the difference here? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a complete opposite difference here that's really interesting to me. And I don't know if this is in my imagination or just, just how I, my brain works. I don't know. But Jesus, well, how, how does Jesus go into the tomb? He's dead. Well, he yeah. Has- see, so these kings go in alive to that's try right. and hide. And then they are they are brought out and killed. And They're brought out in, and they die and, when they come out. And the place that they ran into to hide ends up being their grave. That's right. That's right. And but, Jesus goes into the Jesus grave. Jesus goes in dead and He goes in dead alive. and comes out alive. Right. Yeah. And so he, he takes that judgment of those kings. He is judged. He's placed in a grave. He's judged. But then the one thing that cannot possibly have been on the, the one thing that nobody can imagine, the one thing that seems so foolish to even the disciples who spent three years with him, is when the women come to them and they tell them, we've seen the Lord. King David writes in Psalm 8 that when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Do the heavens matter to us today? How can a deeper appreciation for the heavens strengthen and encourage us in our faith? This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look into the heavens to edify and encourage believers, to exhort non-believers, and to glorify God. Well, Good Heavens, Wayne, it's another Good Heavens episode. How are you today? I'm good, Dan. Uh, Let's... uh... Give it a whirl. Let's give it a whirl. Actually, we're not going to give it a whirl. We're going to stop the whirling. Okay. <laughs> we're going to stop stop the whirling of at least the sun and the moon. We're going to we're going to at least talk about the stoppage of those things. But really, if if we stop the sun and the moon, you know, according to current scientific theories, we're stopping the whirling of the Earth. So uh, yeah, it's a, an amazing story. And uh, how do we look at this uh, in this day and age? Uh, right, right. Uh, the passage that we are talking about, uh, if you've heard the previous uh, recording with Wayne, uh, reading from Joshua chapter 10, uh, where we have the account. Now we're going to be talking about the first 28 verses of Joshua 10. Uh, if you haven't listened to Wayne's recording, please do that or grab your Bible and uh, follow along with us in, uh, in the Bible as we, uh, as we talk about this. Now, on this episode, we're not going to read the whole thing because Wayne already did that. We will just be referencing um, certain verses within this discussion, which we hope uh, will edify and encourage you because, Wayne, it seems like we live in a time where we, it would be helpful for us to be reminded of the kind of God that is for us, uh, who, who this God is that is for us. Who is it that we we worship who is it that we claim to know and who is it that that knows us and fights for us and 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 fights our battles for us and does wonderful things for us um but as you know as as we both know in apologetics and and other christian circles 
Uh, this is a favorite chapter of a lot of skeptics who like to like pick on a couple of things like the sun and the moon standing still in the sky and then and then god 's judgment that 's always an unpopular thing in in uh, in the eyes of people that don 't believe is God seems to be a bloodthirsty vengeful god but that 's not what 's going on here in Joshua ten right yeah it 's also a passage that you 'll find a lot of different views of this among christians mm hmm so uh, it's a kind of uh, interesting one to think about. It is. It is. And it's a, an amazing example of God helping his people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, that's, that's really the, I think if I was going to put my foot down on something, we see that God is for man in this regard. That that's this remarkable thing. It reminds me, uh, and we'll get into this, it reminds me of what David says in Psalm 8. When David is looking up at the heavens uh, and he says, the moon and the stars that thou hast ordained or created, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And I think there's a parallel here in Joshua. What is man that God would stop the sun and the moon in the sky uh, or stop the earth spinning, of course? Uh, we'll get into what kind of language that is in just a second. But, but who yeah. are we, Wayne, that the God of the universe would create us and care for us and love us and basically fight our battles for us. Who is this God of the universe? Yeah. Why would God do something or anything for me? Right. I mean, that's, the, the, that's the, the thing. Now, one thing I know that just for context for Joshua, what's interesting to me as I was reading this today, what does God say repeatedly to Joshua in the beginning chapter of Joshua? This is important to set up because we see it here again in chapter 10. Uh, be strong and courageous. Right. Now, it's interesting because you think when you read that as an American, uh, Jim, go to the Home Depot and get me some lumber, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's like a, an order or a command where Jim's like, I don't want to go to Home Depot. Um, but but the command to go get lumber at Home Depot uh, doesn't give the guy the strength to go do it, right? It's just telling the guy to go do it, right? Right. Uh, you could, that would not be the right way to read what God is telling Joshua to do. God is not telling Joshua, hey, Joshua, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't be a sissy. He's not, he's not doing that. He's actually commanding, because this ties in with Genesis, which I know we like to do, because we're talking about the sun and the moon, and in context, we have to talk about the sun and the moon, how God created them, because he's the creator, right? He said, what did he do? What does Genesis say? That God created the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the sun and the moon, right. right? He said, let there be light. Let there be this, let there be that. So when we come to Joshua and God's telling Joshua to be courageous, God is strengthening Joshua to be courageous. He's not asking Joshua to find some courage within him because he doesn't have any. He's yeah, and it's, it's not that Joshua had the power to stop the sun, obviously. Right. Uh, it's about, Going in God's strength, not in our own strength. That's right, because no human being can look up at the sun and, and tell it to stop. Um, we generally look up at the sun and say things like, it's hot today, which it is. <laughs> and and that, well, what does it mean to go in God's strength? It That's right. Mean, it doesn't mean that you're, you know what's going to happen, really, but you go into a challenge trusting God that somehow he will help you through and work it out. Right. And in the, in the midst of what you're doing, God provides you the very things that you need. Uh, I think of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. 
And, you know, later to his disciples in John, I think it's in John, don't be afraid or worry about what you're going to say when you get persecuted or brought before kings. Because guess what? In that very hour, the Spirit will give you the words to speak. That's right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's not a command to do something Joshua isn't able to do. It's God proclaiming, let there be strength in Joshua, basically. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. Um, and uh, so we read in verse 7 of chapter 10 now in our text, Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he had all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Now you think, oh, these guys, these brave Spart- Spartan-like warriors who have no fear. But the next verse is like, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. So it's like, even if they, they seemingly are going on in a warlike, cur- with warlike courage, God still says to Joshua, do not fear. And this is something that you read. Jesus says this over and over again. You read this in the Old Testament. You read it in Isaiah. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Be, of, be strong and of good courage. God is declaring and giving you the, the strength to, to not be afraid of what he's asking you to do. He strengthens right. you for that task. So, uh, Dan, maybe we should uh, review the kind of the context of the story a little bit. Here. This the story is uh, the the Israelites are just beginning to enter the land of Canaan, and Moses had just died recently, mm. and Joshua is now in charge and leading the people. So the first city they uh, they attacked that they took over was the city of Jericho. And that's an interesting story in itself. And then from Jericho, they went to a place uh, that was apparently a a fortress called Ai. Yeah. A-I. And then uh, so they made this camp at Gilgal. So Gilgal was right after they crossed the Jordan River. Mm -hmm. They set up a camp. So this would have been like on... um, the eastern side of uh, uh, lots of hills or low mountains. Mm. And then uh, the city of Gibeon, which is what we're going to be talking about, was on the other side of these hills. And so the people of Gibeon uh, went to Joshua and, and lied to him and tricked him into making a deal so that they would not be killed in the battle. They were, mm-hmm. see, all these people had heard the stories of what the Israelites had done and how the, they had crossed the Red Sea and they had already defeated some kings on their journey. And so they were afraid of the Israelites. It was a large, the Israelites had a large army. And so uh, the Gibeonites convinced Joshua to let them live and they ended up making them uh, slaves basically. Mm. Uh, but, uh, so, uh, they were at Gilgal at this camp and the Gibeonites come and they tell Joshua, come and help us because we're being attacked by all our neighboring, uh, people. So all the other cities around, uh, around Gibeon found out that Gibeon had sort of turned tail Mm. And and sided with the Israelites. Mm. So all these other uh, Canaanite, the Amorite and, and Amalekite people around there, decided to attack Gibeon together. Mm-hmm. It does. It doesn't tell us how many people were in these uh, Canaanite armies, but uh, so 
after uh, Joshua gets word, he sends the entire Israelite army. They have to wa- march all night through the mountains mm-hmm. to get to get to Gibeon, mm-hmm. and they get to Gibeon the, this morning, and that and then they they fight a battle there, and that's the right. beginning of the story. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I was reading up on this idea of cities. Uh, don't think really in the modern context of Atlanta or Chicago or Nashville or something like that. Yeah. There's more, the, the word, I, I forgot what the Hebrew word is, but the Hebrew word is more like a fortress or a structure um, that, that would be more like a garrison soldier, like a Fort Campbell or Fort Bragg or something like that. These were more like fortifications. Um, yeah. More like small towns. Yeah. It wasn't a, wasn't a typical city as we might understand it today, but the, you say in verse in verse three, uh, or in the beginning, first few verses, we get there's five kings. There's uh, Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem. There's Hoham, king of Hebron. There's Piram, king of Jarmuth. There's Japhia, king of Lashish or Lachish, um, and uh, to Debir, king of Eglon. So there's kings, and these kings obviously have an army. So this is a formidable group of individuals, as you say. We don't know how many. Um, but, uh, it was enough to make Gibeon a little nervous. Hey, uh, Joshua, come on. Uh, we need some help here. Uh, our neighbors are attacking us. Um, and so, uh, Israel and Joshua go all night. Um, and in verse seven, it says, Joshua went up from Gilgal, their, their camp that they made. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Then the Lord says in verse eight, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands, not one of them shall stand before you. So God is already, before they even get there, God has already said to Joshua, I've given them into your hands. And then Joshua comes upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gigal. And then verse 10 is fantastic. The Lord confounded them before Israel, and he, the Lord, slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them. The Lord pursued them. I wonder how what that looked like. <laughs> By way of the ascent of Beth Horan and struck them as far as Azekah and Mekedah, I think. And we're going to disagree on how to pronounce these things. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, we're a little unsure. On yeah, you say Ajalon, I say Ajalon or something like that. Yeah, t- yeah. Tomato, tomato. But anyway, uh, there is God doing the battle. God is enacting his judgment upon these people. And on a side note here, you think, we don't know exactly what these people were guilty of, except that we do know one thing, that they went up and were going to attack Joshua and the Israelites. And uh, uh, God's judgment is poured out, poured out on them. They're the ones that are, God is doing the judgment here. And it's very unpleasant. It's very difficult to read. And you think, gosh, what did they do? But uh, the judgment is meted out in accordance with the sin of these people. I mean, that's not the focus of the text, but there is. Well, right. So we're not told everything they did right. in, in this in this book. There are some things in other places in the Old Testament it tells about so the Canaanite people in general. Right. But you had something, and, uh, you had something about, I mentioned when we were discussing this, something about Abraham in relation to these people. Why don't you share that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a kind of significant thing. People like to criticize the idea of God uh, commanding Joshua and, and the Israelites to wipe out these people. But um, actually, 
the story I think really starts in the time of Abraham mm-hmm. when it be long, long before uh, Moses and Joshua were told to go and take over Canaan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent Abraham there and he didn't send Abraham there to fight them. He sent Abraham there to live among them. And uh, Abraham lived among them and he earned their respect. And at Abraham's time, they were not, all bad people and they were uh, you have some interesting insights if you read the book of Genesis about the life of Abraham he started the process I, I basically it was after the fact that uh, though at the time of Abraham there were some people who believed in God there but there were others there that were not were not like that yeah. obviously we, we know like it's about Sodom and Gomorrah for example, they were just their cities were destroyed at the time of Abraham. But by the time you get to the time of Moses, the people in Canaan had had uh, descended into the a terrible way of life. They were violent people, and it says they were sacrificing their babies. They they would they would burn babies alive. Mm. Um, uh, in their idolatry, and there's other terrible things that they would do. Mm. So things had descended into uh, people that were at least some. Some of those people were pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see that uh, the Abram, Abraham was on friendly terms with Melchizedek, for example, uh, in Genesis, and and this is in in and around. Well, that was uh, in the south of Israel, um, but uh, this this battle in the Valley of Ajalon, Ajalon is up in the north, uh, northeast, just across the Jordan River. You go from Gilgal, kind of south and east, or south and west, excuse me. Right. Uh, from across the Jordan, down through Gilgal, and then down through the valley of Aijalon, or Aijalon. But, uh, you know, Dan, I the story uh, of God doing this in, Cana, in the land of Canaan doesn't make sense if you, if you can't acknowledge that God is the creator of all mankind. Well, that's right. I mean, God we, made the earth. He's very clear in the in the Bible that He made the earth, right? And, and that He's the God of all mankind, and that He can give land whoever He wants. He can raise up one nation and take down another. Right. I mean, uh, the uh, the judgment. You know, we have in verse ten, um, God, the Lord, confounding them before Israel. God is doing them, and He's showing this before Israel. In other words, Israel is witness to how God has delivered them. Um, and God is delivering them. And then verse 11, this is where, this is just before the sun and the moon reference, uh, that judgment doesn't begin with the sun and the moon and Joshua commanding the sun and the moon to stand still. We'll get to that in a minute. But there is more judgment that begins from heaven where it says the Lord, verse 11, threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azica or Azica, Azica. Uh, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Yeah, you know, Dan, this is interesting. Uh, some people might think this is not plausible, but it really is plausible. I, I, was, I, I found an article that in August of 2018, there was a big hailstorm in Colorado that killed animals at a zoo in Colorado. Um, <laughs> this is just a couple of years ago. Wow. And so this has happened occasionally throughout history and and people who kind of know about weather and history could give you other examples 
there are known examples where there were really powerful thunderstorms that had really, really large hail, and uh, it could actually kill people or animals. This has happened. Wow. So, so this was apparently a really major thunderstorm, uh, at least for a while, but uh, then it goes into talking about the sun and moon. Mm. Yeah. It, that's I, I didn't know about the hailstorm, but um, you see that there is specific judgment there. The point is not, well, was it an asteroid, a meteorite, or what, what, what was it, hailstones? How big were these things? What was what we see is what we we have a taste of God. The 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 whole of the heavens are marshaled against God's enemies and for God's people. Now, this isn't anything that that Israel earned, right? We don't earn right, right to command the heavens on our behalf because it brings yeah. to mind the apostles and Jesus, where they're like, "Lord, should we call down fire from heaven?" And uh, he said, no, (laughs) you do not know what manner of spirit you are. And, you know, I can't help but wonder if they didn't have something of the Old Testament in mind with Elisha or, or this passage where, where, you know, but, but the reason, why does Jesus say no, Wayne? Because the judgment that falls, that should fall on us falls on Jesus ultimately in the New Testament and that's the remarkable thing that the Yahweh here, who is commanding the heavens to fight on behalf of Joshua and Israel, is the same one who will come down to us in the flesh and suffer his own judgment upon it upon himself for our sins. And and this is why we don't call fire down on people anymore, because the the fire from heaven, if you will, the judgment falls upon Jesus on the cross. Uh, but now we get to that enigmatic passage here in verse 12 that everybody well, likes. Look, I'd like to add a little bit to that. Dan. Oh, yeah, so, please, please. Um, so, yes, Jesus took our our judgment for us. But I think the the conquest of Canaan was a unique thing in history. Oh, yes. Because Israel was a chosen nation in a sense that doesn't quite exist today. And uh, it was a unique situation Mm -hmm. so you can't you can't use this to justify uh war really no it's a very special unique situation yeah that's a good point because we we oftentimes you know as the crusades and other unfortunate events in the history of the church has used violence and coercion to um you know confront their enemies and uh really the way that jesus does i mean you what does he tell peter right before he's arrested you know put your sword away and then he heals the high priest's servant's ear, which is so mm-hmm. counter counterintuitive for a right. lot of us who want to preserve our lives right. um, and save ourselves and save our skins. And, you know, I was just talking with somebody today about, I have more of a penchant for self-defense than the Great Commission. I would rather be more about defending me and what I think rather than what Jesus says and what Jesus thinks. And, um, but here we get... To, so I'm glad you emphasized that because we don't use old we don't use God's judgment in the Old Testament to justify violence against anyone uh, today at all. Um, but we see in verse 12, this is the this is the the centerpiece, if you will, the, the enigma of the chapter. And and it's interesting too, Wayne, because a lot of people just stop at the sun. Well, how could God make the sun stop in the sky? Well, that's not the only thing He stopped in the sky, <laughs> right? Uh, 
But but listen to this. This is was something that was really interesting. A good reminder. Verse twelve. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in mm-hmm. the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel. So so you said this earlier. Joshua's not talking to the sun and the moon. Why? Because what what's the the sun and the talking to the sun and the moon is a is idolatry. It's completely forbidden in Israel. It's not like. Uh, right. He wouldn't do that. No, yeah. he would not. This is what pagan nations might do. And in fact, I think, I don't I can't conclusively demonstrate this at the moment, but I think some of the, the people that are judged here actually had, I believe, I was reading one commentary, and I don't, I don't want to say it emphatically that it's true, but some of these, these kings may have worshipped uh, the sun, moon, or stars. Uh, I don't know for sure, but uh, yeah, I, don't here, know. I don't know. Neither here nor there. Joshua is not Joshua is not talking to the sun and the moon as though they can hear him and that they're obeying his commands that there's some sort of uh, you know demigod or something. Joshua spoke to the Lord and then in front of Israel uh the famous uh, parallelism here, O sun stand still at Gibeon and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. And so you have this miraculous sign, the stoppage of two bodies that we know most of the time are in constant motion, or the planet is in motion now. So mm-hmm. let's, before we go any further with this, Wayne, let's address something that you brought up in your notes. Um, phenomenological, if I'm pronouncing that right, phenomenological language in scripture that seems to be what's going on here what does that mean right so this is an important idea in how you interpret the bible and uh i i learned about this from an old uh, book that's an old book now written by rc sproul years ago back in the 70s it is a book called knowing scripture and i'd like to read a little thing from his book here uh, dan phenomenological language is that language which describes things as they appear to the naked eye. When biblical writers describe the universe around them, they do it in terms of external appearances and not with a view to scientific technological precision. Mm. I like, I like that. So that's good. What we have in this passage is more of a, it's more like an eyewitness account. It's a, a description of what they saw. Okay. And now it doesn't explain it in terms of the physics. Okay. And, and uh, obviously raises scientific questions and uh, I could put on my physicist hat for a minute, if you don't mind. I but, don't uh, mind. I, I, I think I, our I would say, are... <laughs> I would say Dan, that my, whatever speculations I have is not very important really. Um, uh, but, um, so sometimes what people think is that the earth stopped spinning on its axis, but actually that wouldn't work because it says the sun stopped. If you go to the next verse and, and uh, where is this verse 12, the sun stopped. Oh, this is verse 13. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since it says a day when the Lord listened to a man. <laughs> so mm. um, if you, if the earth were to, 
continue in its orbit and stop spinning, the sun would slowly move backwards. It would move back towards the west, slow, very slowly. Mm-hmm. So it would not actually stop. And uh, so what would have to work out, I think, for it to really stop in the sky is you know, Earth could go into what you could call synchronous rotation or a tidal lock, although it's not it's sort of an artificial tidal lock. Uh, but if if Earth slowed down in its spin rate, it could uh, match the the angular change from the orbit so that it, the sun would appear to stop in the sky. Mm-hmm. Now that's still an incredible thing. And, and any uh, radical change in the earth's spin, w- other things being equal, if you were just looking at this from the, from natural forces, that would be a catastrophic disaster for people on the earth. Yeah. So in order for God to do this, he has to actually protect everyone on the planet so that Israel can fight their battle. And it's not a So so it means that the the ocean would wash over the continents, the atmosphere would spin around the planet and uh, unless God intervened to prevent that. So God prevents all sorts of catastrophic effects of this for people all over the earth so that the nation of Israel can fight their battle. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. I would say that, that the, the, the earth, I mean, in the beginning, what does God say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with the full knowledge of what he knew would happen on the earth. What would he do, Wayne? He would come down to earth as a man it's right. like this is the center. Now, I'm not saying that the earth is the center of the universe, but it is the center of God's attention. This is the stage upon which Jesus is revealed to us, the stage yes. upon which Yahweh comes and interacts with us from Sinai to Calvary to the empty tomb to the resurrection. This is the stage upon which God reveals himself to us. And so, I mean, we've all probably seen the picture, most of us have, I'm sure of uh, what we call the pale blue dot that was taken in February of 1990 by a Voyager 1 satellite that Carl Sagan made famous. Uh, that tiny little dot, right, uh, from 3.7, 3.7 billion miles away, I think, somewhere out of right. the far reaches of our solar system. The Earth is tiny, 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 tiny. You can't even make out the moon from that position. It's so small. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then our star from a distance of several billion light years is also tiny. And so, you know, people say, well, how in the world could God physically accomplish the stoppage of the earth, the sun, the moon, this kind of thing? There's so many physics that go wonky with that. Uh, it's impossible. Um, but you, we're talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth and three little things within the large, magnificent, wondrous, incredibly huge and vast universe. Uh, controlling the motion of these three celestial bodies is, is nothing right. to God. Um, so, yeah, Dan, we've talked about before when I became a Christian, which was in 1979, I had trouble for a while believing in miracles. A lot of people do. So, so I can I can understand someone. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a physics major when I became a Christian, and so I did have tro- some problems with that. But I, I eventually came around. Um, you can't explain much of anything about 
God creating the universe or, or a lot of things without believing in miracles. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of miracles in the Bible. And, um, you know, the, the book of Joshua is a historical narrative. It talks about real places where we know where these places, some of these places are. We may not know exactly where all of them are. Um, it's like in the gospels, the, the gospels are very historical. Uh, the details that can be checked historically are, 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 have been verified in many cases. And so in the context of this historical narrative, you you have miracles, so um, you know I, I like to make an analogy to help understand miracles. Okay, and my analogy is that a traffic cop at a at an intersection, <laughs> and so imagine you're in a car and you're at an intersection with a red light, but there's a there's a policeman at the intersection. And if the if the light is red and the policeman tells you to go, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Well, you better pay attention to the policeman. <laughs> so the policeman supersedes the law of the traffic light. It does not undo the law. It does not break the law. Right. It supersedes it. Yeah, it's not a. It's a, in the natural course of events, if you will, in terms of how traffic laws work. Uh, this is a perfectly acceptable imposition of uh, of of authority that is uh, behind the traffic laws um, because so you, that, have, you have you yeah. have and I think I, I like how the analogy can continue on with an incarnate in person embodiment of the law right the the guy yeah. the police officer in a body standing in the middle of the intersection supersedes uh, the the light itself because he is the embodiment of the law now uh, right which is kind of what Jesus is, right? He, he, he fulfills yeah. the law and uh, he comes down to earth. Yeah. The, so the old Testament is like traffic laws. Nobody could obey them. Still nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then uh, Jesus comes at the intersection of God and man. I'm sorry. Your analogy is really good. It's really hitting me right now. Um, and, 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 and gives us the direction, you know, here's what the kingdom of God is like, right? Right, and and in this day and age, uh, miracles in a story like this can can seem like a, like a sort of they can, miracles can seem like a an unpleasant interruption or like something that doesn't belong, or uh, it's it's almost like uh, uh, you could think of a kind of another loose analogy. I guess would be if there's a pothole in a road in a certain street. Nobody wants to go down that road. And so they avoid the road because they say, well, I don't want to go down that road because there's a pothole. So a miracle and a historical story is, is an inconvenient thing. It's kind of like an interruption or an obstacle. It's, it's an, an inconvenient thing that people and, don't want to think. You know, Wayne, I think uh, we, you remember when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, um, the Bible says he didn't do many miracles there. Why? Because of what their unbelief. lack of unbelief, yeah, yeah, their unbelief. Jesus did not. Now it's not that uh, there's a couple of words for doubting, or you know, when Peter's walking on the water, um, and Jesus he falls into the water, and Jesus rescues him, and Jesus says, "Why do you doubt?" Literally, the Greek word there is, "Why did you think two things?" 
And so it's like what Jesus says elsewhere. It's like many, when they, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. So they say one thing, they do something else, but they don't, they're literally thinking two things. Um, and, you know, James warns us about being double-minded. I think it's James. Um, and the gospels are all about being singularly minded. Remember when Jesus is confronting people who want to follow him and he says, well, let me go bury my father. Let me say goodbye to my family. And, and Jesus says, no, you follow me. You know, and and so there's this necessity of being singularly minded about who Jesus is and what he can do. And we don't see any wavering or doubting in, in Joshua. Why? Because Jesus strength or God is Yahweh strengthens Joshua to to do what God has commanded. God's commands are fulfilled through Joshua. God is giving God, Joshua the strength to do these things. And and so in when we come to the gospels, it's like we don't you know, in Nazareth, people were doubting God's ability, doubting Jesus's ability to do things, rather than, you know, the man who says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He didn't doubt Jesus could make him clean. He Mm -hmm. recognized the issue was one of God's will, his permission, right? Um, uh, If you're willing, you can make me clean. It's like the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. And so, the idea that God, I think in my own life, and I think in our modern culture, a lot of us are sort of maybe double-minded about the miracles in scripture and where, where are miracles in our own lives? Where is God working in our own lives? Do we believe in God's ability to deliver us from our enemies, to deliver us through difficulty, to, to do what seems impossible to us? I mean, many of us are facing trials and tribulations in our lives right now. And we look at the situation and we think it's impossible. Yeah, I believe in God, but Ah, he's not going to do anything or he can't do anything about this, or I've got to do this myself. Um, there's not this patient cultivation and waiting upon God to, to do the very things that we need him to do. Right. Yeah. So that's always a, a challenge for us on day to day, but uh, Dan, I, I, I've been noticing a lot for a long time that scholars often tend to reject a story altogether just because of a miracle like this in Joshua 10. So in other words, they, they don't even want to consider the book of Joshua being historical. They think, and they treat it like a lot of the details don't matter because since it has a miracle in it to them in their mind, it discounts the whole thing, but you can't just throw out the miracle and keep the rest of it. Because if you, throw out the miracle, the rest of the story doesn't make sense anymore. And this is true in the, in the Gospels about the life of Christ, too. In Jesus' ministry, he did miracles. And if, if you just try, try to treat Jesus as a good moral teacher, but you don't believe the miracles, then you end up rejecting who he is because you're, you're, it doesn't make sense without the miracles. The miracles attested to who he was. So the role of the miracles in a historical narrative uh, passage is important for getting the point <laughs> of the passage. Yeah. You, can't, uh, you can't separate uh, the, the miraculous claims of, of, of God from who God is because, I mean, that's what a lot of the light, enlightenment thinking did with David Hume and you know, people like Thomas Jefferson and deists of the 18th, 19th centuries, uh, enlightenment thinking that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but, you know, the miracle stuff, especially the resurrection from the dead, 
Um, you know, that's just not, that's just legendary things. Um, but if you eviscerate the miraculous from scripture, um, you dilute uh, the, the actual meaning and intent of why Jesus was performing miracles, why God did these things as, as what are the signs, what are the sun and the moon for in Genesis? For signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And, and what was John, how does John describe Jesus's miracles as samion, as signs? as signs, mm -hmm. uh, that he is for us and not against us. And then what are the signs that Jesus does in the New Testament, Wayne? What do they do? They establish Jesus's authority uh, right. because when he heals the man who is, who is paralyzed, he says, uh, pick up your pallet, uh, your sins are forgiven, uh, you know, and people are like, well, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And uh, the miracle of the water to wine in Cana, John says that this is the first sign that Jesus performs. So these signs establish God's authority, and they also meet a need, right? They, they help people. They heal people. They provide food for people. They, they provide healing for people. They are, they're not like a magic show in Vegas, right? They are establishing right. God's compassion, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his love uh, to those to, hit, to the people that he loves. And so that's what you see in Joshua. It's kind of like, uh, 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 the, in a very similar spirit, uh, the water into wine. You know, they ran out of wine, right? What was Joshua running out of? Time. Right. You know, so God can make time. He can make wine. Um, he can heal a blind man. He can clothe people. He can feed people. He can miraculously do these things. Um, and so the God we serve is still the God of miracles. He can still do things in our lives because he loves us. And, uh, and, and, and so you can't, I think that's very important. You can't try to, and I have read in preparation for this, I have read some accounts of well-intended, well-meaning Christians, I think, uh, trying to give the account of the sun and the moon stopping in the sky, trying to give a naturalistic account of how this may have happened trying to explain it in terms of purely natural phenomena. And I just think the explanations were so far afield of anything, even in, even in, uh, you know, off the charts physics, uh, there's just no real final natural explanation for what occurred here. I mean, right. There might be. And, and, and I would say they, those, those uh, explanations always end up ignoring the details of the, of what it actually says happened. And, uh, this is this is what happens on television when you watch things that are about the Bible on something like the Smithsonian Channel or the History Channel, and the, sometimes they do some Bible-related topics and they talk about things like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or they might have a show about the Long Day of Joshua and something, but they ignore the details of the passage and interpret it in some totally unrelated way that really doesn't doesn't make sense of the story so i want to emphasize dan if you leave out the miracle the story no longer makes sense and uh, i want to i want to talk about this what this says a little more so we can see that so um you know it says the both the sun and the moon stopped and uh that is possible on some days i mean if this were to happen i mean that See, normally we see the moon at night in many cases, but there are some times when the sun and moon are both visible during the day. 
but the moon might be only visible for a short time and maybe in the morning or in the evening before it gets either before it, um, you know, so there are times when the sun can be up in the middle of the sky at its highest point and the moon could be low um, for some period of time. And that's pro- apparently what happened in Joshua 10 where they happen to both be visible during the day. Um, this isn't always possible all the time, on every day, but some days it is. So this is what it's describing. And then the thing that I think interesting is you got to think about what the Israelites did in, in on this long day. And if you follow the, the story, it goes down to verse uh, 28, where it's describing all the things that they did on that one day. So it ends up, they went as far as a city or a place called Maqueda. And if you, if you look on maps, that would have been somewhere around 30 or 35 miles from the city of Gibeon. So what what they did was in the morning, they started this battle at Gibeon. We don't know how long the battle took, but they there was a large number of soldiers at this city. So they fight a battle at Gibeon. The Israelites were winning the battle. So these uh, Amalekites and Canaanites started running. They started trying to escape. And then there was a hailstorm that killed many of them while they were trying to run. And so the Israelites then uh, chased them down. And uh, they went. So after fighting a battle, then they went uh, like 30 or 35 miles in a day. And there were two or three other cities that they took over in the course of this day. So they really did a lot and traveled a long distance in one day. They took a big swath of territory. It took control of a big swath of territory in one day. And so if you say that this was not a real event, then you need to deal with the, the question, of how did they do so much in this day? Mm-hmm. That's an important point to me. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so the, 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 the critical period, the, the critical, I have my scripture here, the, the, the critical thing here is uh, verse 14, I think, right in the middle of the text uh, of the chapters, we're ta- the verses we're talking about. And there was no day, like you said, there was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Right. And, so that's, that's amazing. And uh, so one of the things that's been put forward, Dan, is some have tried to say it, it was only psychological that uh, uh, it, it just seemed like a long day because they were winning the battle so well or something. Mm-hmm. Or, or some people have, some people have actually proposed it was actually uh, um, something about the uh, darkness or uh, instead of the sun stopping, it was more like the sun was, uh, clouded out and not it was not bright or something, but it's it says you could see the sun stopped in the sky, and, and uh, so that doesn't seem to fit. Um, so I think a lot of these other attempts of explanations don't work. So if you if you 
if you can't explain it with something else, we you have to come back to uh, we just are supposed to believe this. Mm-hmm. The Bible is saying this really happened. Now, some people will say, "Well, there's no evidence for this," and and uh, if this actually happened, this would have created a lot of chaos. But I think we've addressed the idea of the miraculous and God being able to sustain what he has made, sustain what he has created, uh, because he is the creator. He is the Lord and savior uh, of us. And uh, as John three sixteen says, God so loved the cosmos. That's the Greek word used there. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever so should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Joshua and Israel here in the, in the Valley of Ajalon, uh, trusted in the Lord who was uh, able to deliver them. And it reminds me, as they go through this valley, Wayne, um, it reminds me of Psalm 23. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, because uh, you are with me, your rod and thy staff, and thy staff comfort me. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, but, but that's what's happened. That they're walking through a valley of tumult, of evil, of judgment, and God is with them, uh, and God delivers them, and God is the one who is fighting the battles that these that that is before Israel, and so that we can see and be reminded uh, that is the Lord who fights for us. Um, I want to talk about the latter half of this really quickly in terms of uh, verses sixteen through twenty-eight, because there are five kings. Remember that uh, are, um, involved in this narrative, five Kings that are, that come against Gibeon and Israel and Joshua, and, uh, they're routed, right? Uh, they're, they're routed, but the Kings, what do the Kings do, Wayne? They go and they run into a cave. Yeah. They tried to hide in a cave at right. this place called Maqueda. Maqueda. And why do they go into a cave? What's the, what's on their minds, uh, to escape, to yeah. preserve themselves, right? That they, they go into a cave for self-preservation and for safety. But what does Joshua command uh, the Israelites to do? Joshua says in verse 18, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. What does that remind you of? Roll a stone in front of the cave and place a guard in front of it. <laughs> it's like the when they buried Jesus' body. That's right. So this is, you know, maybe I'm crazy. You know, I don't, you know, if, if I am, you can stop me. Or somebody will give me a comment and tell me I'm being a, a bad theologian here. But <laughs> I think it's really interesting, of course, because we know Jesus as what? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Jesus is King of these five Kings. But, What's the difference here? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a complete opposite difference here. That's really interesting to me. And I don't know if this is in my imagination or just, just how I'm, my brain works. I don't know. But Jesus, well, how, how does Jesus go into the tomb? He's dead. Well, he yeah. Died. See, so these Kings go in alive to try right. and hide and then they are, they are brought out and killed and they're put, brought out and, and they die and, when they come out. And the place that they ran into to hide ends up being their grave. That's right. That's right. And but, Jesus goes into the Jesus grave. Jesus goes in dead and he comes goes in out dead alive. And comes out alive. Right. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> he takes that judgment of those kings. He is judged. He's placed in a grave. He's judged. But then the one thing that cannot possibly have been on, the, the one thing that nobody can imagine, the one thing that seems so foolish to even the disciples who spent three years with him, is when the women come to them and they tell them, we've seen the Lord. 
and they're like, basically, you've been in, look at you, Mary, you're crying, you haven't slept in three days, you got spices all over your tunic, you know, what's going on? You know, go home and get some rest, Mary, right? Uh, but they think it's foolish talk. They absolutely think it's foolish talk. And so you see that, that almost like the sun and the moon stopping in the sky almost has, that resonates that, that foolishness. No way did that happen. Come on. Uh, you know, somebody rising from the dead, the sun and the moon stopping in the sky. Uh, <laughs> there's similar parallels there of like, no way, no way. Nobody saw that coming. And so the guard, the guards shook as dead men when the angels appeared and the stone was rolled away and the women are there and they see Jesus and they can't believe it. I don't think anybody can. Can you, can you, uh, can you at least give them some sympathy that nobody could I- immediately <laughs> believe this? Um, and so what happens is that the creator of the sun and the moon, he stops, he is laid to rest. He is dead. Um, in the person of, of Jesus goes into the grave, dead comes out alive. The Kings go into the, the tomb alive and come out and are killed. And so the narrative is that Jesus does the impossible. And so I think, you know, in our time that we live, Wayne, I think this is a, a wonderfully applicable story to remind us that if you are facing an impossibility in your life and it, you're just sitting there like totally negative about it, God can't, God won't, he's not able to, I got to do this myself, you know, rest, wait, trust that God will work the impossible. I mean, he's, he is the God of impossibles, right? I mean, he wouldn't be God if he could just do things that we could do. I mean, he, he does above and beyond all that we can ask or imagine, as Ephesians 3.20 says. Right. We, we underestimate God very badly, actually. And uh, we underestimate what he could do in our situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, one, one other little thing I'd like to add, and this is kind of a side note, Dan. Uh, you know, if there really was a long day, this would have different effects on different places around the planet because uh, some people would be at night when this was in the day in Israel. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I found that there are actually a few stories uh, from long ago, but this is going back into really the early prehistory and there's not much records of going back that far, but, for example, in, in Mexico, there was a there's some kind of a history of the empire of Culhuacan that says that there was a night that it continued for an extended time. And there's another story from New Zealand from the Maori people that supposedly there was a uh, a time when the sun took a long time to rise. It was a long night. Hmm. So there there are places. <laughs> Now, I wasn't able to track down much in terms of detail or the, the sources of these. I'm not sure. Uh, so I, I, I don't have a lot of detail on this, but there are some stories of, like that. Um, but, you know, we don't have to have confirmation of everything. Uh, I think the important thing is that Joshua 10 is a very historical book. And uh, the Israelites, there's plenty of evidence that the Israelites were in Egypt and that they were, they moved to Canaan and that they were in Canaan. And so I think, uh, you know, the Old Testament history is good. Um, 
and we should we shouldn't just so we should not throw out a miracle just because it's it's a miracle it's part of the story and we did it's a uh, what happened we did a we did a podcast one of our most popular podcasts um about the flood uh about a year ago and right. uh, kind of surprised us both that so many people listened to it at least clicked on it um and you know we our basic argument was uh you don't have to be a geologist to know and affirm the flood because Jesus affirmed it. And if we take Jesus's words as axiomatically true, um, that is the kind of faith that Jesus requires of us. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a geologist or you can't study the evidence for the flood. I mean, we both think that there is good uh, scientific uh, geological evidence for uh, a global catastrophe of the size uh, described by scripture. Um, but I think we this brings up another issue that could be a whole nother podcast. But a lot of modern critical scholarship uh, today about the Old or New Testament will make uh, the traditional understanding of Jesus's words and his actions in history seem foolish. Um, it is uh, so many, so often in, in social media uh, and in debates and in conversations with uh, non-Christians, uh, oftentimes the phrase uh, consensus of scholarship is used or no scholar believes this, or very few scholars believe this, or you can have faith if you want to, but that's not what the scholars say. Um, and, it, and it really is a, a kind of tactic that, that makes you uh, feel inadequate and embarrassed. Uh, and sometimes the comments can be very personal. Um, but there is this idea afoot, uh, this hostility uh, against the narratives of scripture, against miracles uh, that make people who believe them, uh, at least attempt to make people who believe them feel foolish. Uh, and mocked and, and ridiculed. And um, the same advice that God has given to Joshua applies to us. God commands us and gives us the strength to stand firm and to be courage, to, to be courageous in holding to our convictions. Um, and we have to do so with gentleness and meekness, and we don't always do that. Um, but uh, there is plenty of materials and resources out there for people uh, today, uh, people who are scholars who affirm uh, the traditional historical uh, reality of the miracles that God does in his word. And I think that's important to, to take note of and, you know, to study these things, but ultimately, as Jesus says, not to be ashamed of him and his word and what he's done. And, uh, you know, we live in a time where people are, are, the mocking is increasing. People are becoming lovers of themselves and, and what they believe and, uh, and, and increasingly uh, the miraculous yeah, and this has been going on for several hundred years since the Enlightenment and David Hume and skepticism. Um, it's fashionable to to mock uh, the miraculous accounts of Scripture, uh, call them fairy tales or whatever you want. But there seems to be that that uh, growing uh, mockery and uh, and no one taking seriously what what the Gospels and what the Old Testament are saying. Yeah, and I've I've always come to the conclusion that uh, Christianity makes more sense if you believe the miracles. <laughs> if, you, if you if you question it and don't believe them, then it doesn't doesn't make sense anymore. Right, right. Uh, there there is an urban myth I need to deal with on this, Dan. There's a story that has gone around occasionally, and this oh yes, pops yes, yes, about the uh, NASA supposedly did some calculation or some computer calculation that uh, somehow showed that there was a missing day. And that's just impossible. NASA never did any such thing. And NASA has been asked about this many times. And uh, 
this this is not really possible at all. You can you can make uh, estimates going kind of if you want know, to calculate backwards in time to find out approximately where the Earth was at a certain time, but, but there's a certain uncertainties in those calculations, and you you couldn't use this to figure out if there was a missing day. Uh, there was no way you would have the details to, to determine something like that. Right. And that's, so, that story, unfortunately, is still circulating to some degree. <laughs> so, right. So nobody should be asked, Christians should not be asking NASA about this. It's, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just uh, another embarrassing thing. To so bring Wayne, up. what would be your advice to someone who is confronted by somebody who says uh, that this narrative is impossible? Do you think we've covered all the bases there? Uh, to, to give, I people- would say... Christians believe in a God who can do this. Mm-hmm. God will do incredible things to help his people uh, when it's his purpose to do it. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, it's, it's the universe itself. If you think about it, going all the way back to Genesis, God is creation. God is a creator. God is not bound to create. He was not obligated or bound by any kind of necessity external to him. Uh, to create the heavens and the earth, or us, um, he is a, he is a trinitarian God in a relationship, uh, a loving trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, but he was not bound by necessity to create anything. But but his initial act of creation uh, was an act of love, first and foremost, uh, a love that declares his glory. Um, you know, I think of. Um, when I was a kid, I was just looking at some baby pictures the other day because I, I was remembering this. This whole story brought this to mind. When I was a baby, my mom put me in my crib, of course, and I had one of those mobiles. You know what a mobile is? They, they hang uh-huh. above the crib. Uh-huh. And uh, so there I was. I was my little mobile that I had were angels riding on shooting stars. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's so cool. You know, here's my little uh, nursery, my little baby room that when I came into the world in 19... 19- Gosh, 1968. Okay, there we go. Um, that that there I was, you know, under a mobile of of angels and stars, and so I think about uh, what was that? The Earth is the nursery of the God of the universe. Think of it that way. When you're going to have a child, right, and, and you prepare the nursery for a boy or a girl, you paint the room, you get the, everything ready, and you decorate and everything. You you prepare for the child coming into the world, and you think about uh, the Earth as the nursery of the of the Son of God. Uh, that, that God decorates the nursery for his glory. And uh, it's an expression of love, just like uh, a, a couple would be preparing a room for their child that's soon to be coming into the world. It is an expression yes, and, of love. And Earth is a very special planet. It's a very unique planet, very uh, unusual among planets, mm-hmm. obviously. And so that's because of God's love for us. That's right. And that's ultimately what is happening here in uh, Joshua 10. Uh, there is judgment and there is deliverance. And to me, it's the most remarkable thing that the King of Kings takes upon himself the judgment that we see here meted out on the five kings. Uh, that the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, is put into a cave dead and comes out alive. And, um, you know, and it reminds me too, Wayne, of the end of time when. Um, what is recorded that people will be calling out to the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne mm-hmm. and very, very similar tieback to what's happening here with these five Kings. They go into the, the created rocks for safety. And it's interesting <laughs> when God does return in judgment, 
that people will do that again. They will cry out to the created order to save yes. them from the creator. Mm. Um, and that's, that's what a lot of modern geology does, wouldn't you say? That people put their hope and their safety in the idea of what the rocks really mean so that they can take comfort in the fact that God really didn't judge the earth as he said he did. Well, they're not studying the rocks in fear, I don't think. But they, no, no. That it's, uh, it is definitely uh, trusting in the wrong thing sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't mean to say that all geologists are afraid of God and, <laughs> and interpreting the rocks in a certain right. way to avoid judgment. But I, I, I should put that in the context of the fact that a lot of atheists that I talk to when we talk about the flood uh, will use geology as a, as a sword against the idea of a flood ever having occurred. Um, all the time. You know, I would say a lot of those atheists don't really haven't heard all the story about the geology either. Well, that's true. I mean, most everybody that that wields that as an objection isn't a geologist, right? And so that's the and, and geologists haven't heard those story either. That's right. That's right. There, well, none of us, none of us have heard the whole story. There's right? field work by creationist geologists that uh, is very significant. Things that the average geologist doesn't look for that really are out there. Right, right. So, so, you know, it's not like we're sitting here saying that, you know, Wayne, you and I are perfect and we've escaped God's judgment, God's judgment because we're such smart people and we've been doing a podcast for three years. Uh, it is all by the mercy and grace of Jesus. It is not by anything that we do. It is not by the fact that we, we talk about the universe. It's not by the fact that we go to church or read our Bibles or do nice things for people. None of that justifies us before God. How we are just, we're, we're justified before God by his own declaration of being made right in Jesus. That is the, the, the work that God does for us on our behalf is a work we cannot do for ourselves. That's right. It's not that we're better. And even in the Old Testament, it emphasized to the nation of Israel mm-hmm. that God did not choose them because they were better. Right. Right. No, no. In fact, it it was just God's choice. And this is what God did. Right. And in fact, if you, this, this should be an encouragement to everybody listening. When you see God choosing somebody in scripture from Moses all the way to the apostles, to Peter, to John, that what do you notice about them, about every single human being that God has picked to declare his message? They are a mess. (laughs) They're, they're broken. They sin. They doubt. They fight, they wrestle, they, they disobey. Um, and, and it's like the Apostle Paul says in, in Corinthians, we have this treasure in clay jars, in earthen mm-hmm. vessels, so that the excellency of the power of God may be shown not to be of us. It's from God and not from us. Right. right. So uh, Paul yeah. says in Second Corinthians 4, 6, he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, that is Jesus, in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. So we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So this is exactly something to to akin to what Joshua and Israel was seeing in the Valley of Ajalon. They were perplexed, probably, and afflicted. And, uh, and, and seemingly overwhelmed and out of sorts with this army. But uh, they realized that, that it is God who is commanding and doing and uh, declaring this power. So the power wasn't of Joshua talking to the sun and the moon. You know, the sun and the moon don't have ears, and they certainly didn't hear Joshua. 
Um, but Joshua was talking to the Lord, and the, the, the Lord has the power to still the earth, to still the stars, to still the moon, to still the sun. And if he can do all that, he can still our anxious hearts, because what's the most important thing for us, Wayne, is Jesus's words to us, do not be afraid, fear not, little flock, do not worry, do not fear, be strong yeah. and courageous, do not fear. I will, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so God will marshal the heavens and the earth because he is for us, not because we're wise or smart or have two degrees or, you know, can study physics or whatever the case may be. We don't That's earn. That's right. Yeah. We don't we don't have anything on our resume that impresses God except uh, that we believe in that 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 He has given us His Son Jesus uh, for the redemption of our sins, and uh, we are fallible and we are broken and uh, we struggle with things, um, but it is the Lord who fights for us. And I love the exhortation to Moses in Exodus. I think it's Exodus fourteen that uh, you stand still, the Lord your God will fight for you. And so I think that's a a good note on which to end in, in these troubled times that we can be like Joshua and receive God's strength to be strong and courageous and to be still and to, to be still and to, to calm our anxieties. If God can stop the whirling planets and the stars and the moon, God can stop the whirling worries of our hearts too. And that's I think right. That seems to be the biggest challenge for me sometimes is God stilling my anxiety. Yes. So that's a, this should be a very encouraging passage yes. to Christians. Yeah. Yeah, it should be. And so God can do miracles. He's still the God of miracles. And uh, if he controls the sun, moon, and the stars and created the universe, there's not a whole lot he can't do for, for us and will continue to do for us. That's right. So Wayne, we gave Good you heavens. Good heavens. Good heavens. What a story. What a story. We gave it a whirl, even though there wasn't any whirling going on. It was a cessation yeah. <laughs> of whirling. Thank you, Jesus, for, for stopping those things for Joshua and for us, because uh, uh, we need God in this time. We need Jesus in this time. If For nothing else right now, for all of us and the anxiety that, that, that the current cultural situation has uh, created for many of us. Uh, but we can be still and know that, that God is God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Do not be afraid. Because a lot of times when we get anxious, what do we do? Oh, I got to do this. I got to take care of this. I got to do this. I got to take care of this. I got to do this. I got to take care of that. And we get all anxious with all the stuff that we think we have to do. And uh, so tonight, uh, if the clouds are uh, going to hold, I'm going to go stargazing tonight um, and uh, consider what we talked about. I am uh, going to drive a little ways from where I am to go to a super dark sky place. And uh, one of these days, you're going to come with me. <laughs> one of these days i'll have to do that yes so uh good show wayne i think we we covered a lot of bases and uh i hope and pray it will be an encouragement for our listeners yes so thanks for thanks to everyone for listening to good heavens yes all right wayne we will see you next time right here on good heavens good heavens What does scripture mean when it says the heavens declare the glory of God? How can a biblical perspective of the universe fit within the paradigms of modern science? How can a deeper understanding of the universe strengthen and encourage your faith? Find out by putting Good Heavens in your podcast subscription list today. For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell.